What's up? This is Patrick of RadicCards.com, and today we're going to be talking about a variety of different things. Uh, first, we turned 11 years old on July 11th, and uh, it's been a it's been a really awesome decade and a year. <laughs> a lot's happened. We've grown quite a bit. What started as just tinkering with a uh, a website really back in like March of 2010 and didn't really do anything with this thing until like July of that year. Um, decided that uh, I'd try to, I'd post something on the site and it was just a quick and dirty image of a card that I had acquired as a Frank Thomas card is the 92 Cola autograph. One of the, the he's two versions of those, those, his autographs and that, that, that set. And I had acquired one of the two and I just posted a picture and talked about it like a paragraph and I, I was, I was hooked immediately. I was like, Oh my gosh, this is awesome. I can like talk about trading cards on this website that I have. And so that month into August, I just, I blogged constantly like every day, sometimes twice a day. I was very active, picked up a lot of viewers and a lot of comments. I didn't really know what trackbacks and pingbacks were back then. So like I deleted some of those that came through because I didn't know what they were. I made a lot of rookie errors in the beginning. It's very common to do that when you're learning new software or new anything, really. You're just going to make some errors up front. So I made all kinds of errors. I would upload images that, that weren't titled. They were just straight from a phone or at the time I was using a Canon PowerShot um, digital camera. I used it. I put it to use to um, take pictures of trading cards and, and such um, before I had a smartphone. And, and that was that was really helpful. Those first couple um, images that I had a, a captured for my blog were, were were captured from the Canon PowerShot. This is before I got my Canon Lide scanner, Lide 100. This was my first scanner that I used for the first two years of blogging, and um, it's just a big upgrade. And and so what I would do is I would take a photo with this Canon PowerShot. And I would dump the photo on my computer and just take it and drag it right into the website. I wouldn't size the image down. I wouldn't crop anything. I wouldn't, uh, I think I was, I watermarked all that stuff. I was watermarking things. Um, but I also wasn't um, labeling any of the images. So they'd be like IMG underscore one or two or what, horrible SEO, no SEO at all, really. So when I would put them in the site and have that, that bank of content in the media um, category of my site, I couldn't search anything. Like as the site grew and as I published more content, <laughs> it was horrible. Everything was gigantic, like 3.4 megabytes, just terrible. So I had to size them down in the blog posts. I didn't know what I was doing. I was learning as I go or as I went. And so fast forward, you know, two, three, four, five, six years now, I, I had learned like SEO, image optimization, tagging, descriptions, titles, um, all the stuff that make blogging really robust. And so I learned that as I went. And I, business school didn't teach me any of this. I learned this all on my own, like website design, website marketing, website implementation, um, blogging, content production. That's all stuff I learned on my own, and I take it with me. Business school teaches you just two, two, two and a half years of like a lot of like the practical, like foundational stuff, like accounting, basic marketing strategy operations management, finance, uh, very basic stuff. Um, 
But when I went about my life post business school, I realized like the world is not, <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of us MBAs out there, right? You have to like differentiate yourself uh, in some way. And so I kind of just went in the direction that was to do something that makes me passionate. And I found blogging and it's been just an awesome 11 years. It's been really cool. I've really learned a lot about content optimization. Um, so I just wanted to say that we turned 11 on the 11th of July of this year and uh, happy birthday. Yay. <laughs> so cool. So as you might know, uh, my company, we produce uh, a, ser- a line of supplies, fitted bags, custom stickers. Uh, we do some breaker mats as well. And so uh, we just launched uh, fitted GMA bags. It's our latest product for, for the graded card bags that we have. We have them for PSA, PSA thick slabs, BGS, SGC. Um, and now we've got them for GMA bags. Now I know a lot of us don't collect the GMA stuff, but those of us who do, it's nice to have protection for those slabs as well. Because if you have a few bucks, you can get a nice GMA card. You know, that that helps like dip into like the bargain, like the bargain stuff. You can find some really good deals with the GMA slab stuff. So if you're in a GMA and you like the, those slabs and you have some, and you want to protect them, uh, with something quality, fitted, and stylish. Definitely check those out on our store, store.radicards.com. Uh, we have those available in packs of one, 10 packs, and 15-pack bulk orders. Anyway, I want to talk about that. Uh, these next couple line items are just kind of some big sales, and I want to talk about them. You know, we grew up, if you're listening to this, maybe you, you grew up playing video games. I certainly did. I played a lot of video games growing up. I, I, I remember, gosh, when I was younger... In like 1987, I think it was 87. It might have been before that. My parent, my mom, my parents brought us home a Nintendo, the original Nintendo, that gray box. And we played Mario Brothers like constantly. Mario 1, 2, and 3. And the 2 was always the weird one, but I, I liked 2 because you could play as not just Mario, but you could play Luigi, the princess, the toad, um, all these different, uh, the mushroom guy, Um all these different characters, but it was such a weird, odd, different video game. And it's my understanding it wasn't meant to be, it was purchased after it was made as a standalone game. It was purchased to be part of the Mario series. Don't quote me on that. This is just what I heard when I was growing up, but that's why it's such a different game. But I played that a lot. And then I think it was in 90 or 90, I think it was in 91 when my parents got us the Super Nintendo and we got Super Mario Brothers, like Super Mario World. And I played that like crazy. And that one's cool because you you uh, you work through the, the game and get percentages. Like, you, oh, I'm at 86% complete or whatever. I never got to 100%. I think we got to like 98% was the, the, the farthest I ever got on that game. I'm not even sure if the 100% is possible. I would assume it is. I don't, know any, I don't want to stop at 98%. That doesn't make any sense. But I played that game a lot. And the graphics, they're like silky smooth graphics. Everything has a smiley face on it. Um, it's such a cool environment, the Super Mario World game. I, lo- I just love the soundtrack and the gameplay. It's just so much fun. The sounds, just a great game. Now, you know, fast forward six more years, 1997, I was a freshman in, in high school. And uh, my my parents, my mom got me the PlayStation 1, which I think till this day still has some of the best games ever made, the PlayStation 1. Um I love that system even now, even today. I still have my my PS One from four, you know, twenty four years ago. I, I don't play it really much anymore. I, it's not even hooked up actually right now since we moved. And in fact, before we moved, I don't think I don't think I popped in a game and played it for like years before we moved. And so, um, but 
there's games I used to love, like Siphon Filter uh, was awesome. Was MLB, you know, 2K, whatever. Those games were really fun. All, obviously, all the Tony Hawk's Pro Skater games, the snowboarding games. Um, I played that that system, you know, through college, at least my most of my undergrad. Uh, and I think I played a little in my MBA, but I I don't I didn't, I didn't really have time for much but studying, so I don't I don't think I played much of it during those years. But uh, Mario Brothers wasn't a PS system game. Uh, it was for the N64, and so if you had a PS1 and you wanted Mario Brothers, you kind of had to get the N64. I didn't. I never bought this N64. I never really liked the the triple like prong controller thing. I never. I really got that. But N64 took off with 007. That was an awesome first person shooter. So if you're, you probably remember playing that. I'm sure if you if you were like my age or whatever. But the Mario Brothers for the N64 was also very popular, and you know. Looking back now on stuff that has been preserved all these years, obviously there's going to be a demand for it because a lot of us who got video games, we opened them, we played them, we enjoyed them. You know, we, 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 we put them to use for their purpose. It's like a guitar. It needs to be played. A skateboard should, should be skated, you know. And so, but if you keep it preserved, it's in mint condition. It's like old trading cards. Like you don't touch them. They, they remain intact and in excellent shape. Down the line, you have them graded. They come out high grades. They sell extremely well. Same goes for video games. Video games are also collectibles. So, that being said, um, sealed examples of classic video games have been selling really, really well. And some of them have been reaching major auction houses and going on auction that way. And so, a, a sealed copy of Mario 64 and 64 sold through Heritage Auctions for $1.56 million recently. This sale was also announced two days after a sealed copy of an early production Legend of Zelda from 1987 sold for $870,000. Another great game, Zelda. I just, I've always loved the Zelda games. The ones for the regular Nintendo, super, super hard. But the Super Nintendo one is amazing. Zelda's fantastic. Um, but I want to mention that because that's like, a, that's a huge sale. Huge, huge sale. And, and you know, as as we... As we go about the years, this game will become older and older, and so sealed copies are going to become harder and harder to find, driving up sale values more and more, right? And so um, I want to talk about this because a lot of us in our 20s and 30s played a lot of these games growing up, and so, and, but we, we never kept, a lot of us didn't keep this stuff sealed. We just wanted to break it open, and throw it in and play it and put, you know, put down 20, 30 hours a week on it during the summer times, you know? Um, and that was, that was, gosh, those were memories from distant past for me. So I never even played Mario N64 because I never had an N64. But I'm sure some of you did, and I'm sure you'd appreciate this particular line item. It is a collectible. Um, sometimes I dabble in, like, learning about other collectibles. Video games is, is, is kind of one of them. I don't really collect video games myself, but comic books is another area I like to look into just because I grew up collecting those as well. I don't currently collect them. Um, I just don't have the bandwidth, the time and money for everything. So I, but I like to learn about just general collectibles. And so I want to talk about that because it's such a huge sale for the Mario N64 uh, sealed copy going through Heritage. Such a cool thing. Speaking of big sales, now going back to the trading card market. Now, it seems like since like the pandemic started, seems like records are being broken like almost every month for trading card sales. Like 
big sale. Oh my gosh, you know, record sale for modern card. And then a month later, record sale for modern card. And then a month later, record sale for any card. You know, it's just like so many huge sales have happened over the last 18 to 24 months that when there's a record broken, it's just a matter of like weeks before it's going to be broken again. Uh, I've blogged a lot about these. If you want to go check out um, some of the market activity posts that I've I've blogged about in the various sports categories on radicards.com, you can check those out. There's like a Luka Doncic that Doncic that sold for uh, four mil. There was a, um, a Mickey Mantle 52 tops PSA nine, and then also LeBron 2003 exquisite parallel, both fetching 5.2 million. Um, and then recently, there's a Stephen Curry logo man auto, uh, one of one, 5.9 million dollars. Now it's my understanding the company who purchased this. Um, is a is like a sports card asset management company. So they, they purchase the majority shares within the uh, the, the card. So they, they have the ownership of it because they have the majority shares of it. Really cool stuff. It's difficult, you know, to like kind of comprehend or even conceptualize that amount of money. I can't do it. I can conceptualize $100. Heck, I can conceptualize $1,500. I know what that looks like. I've seen $1,500 a lot of times. Um, I, I've never, I can't conceptualize $10,000. I don't know what $10,000 looks like. I can imagine what it probably looks like. It's a stack of, you know, a hundred hundreds, which is a pretty dense stack. I can envision that kind of, but once you get into like the hundred thousand range, I guess, you know, if I look at like Floyd Mayweather's like dining room table, it's just stacks of hundreds, <laughs> you know, like you've seen that there's a picture online of him sitting at his dining room table is just stacks of $100 bills. I think there's millions of dollars like just sitting on it. So I guess in that case, I can conceptualize whatever amount of money that would have been, maybe like a million and change or whatever. But $5.9 million, that's, that is like monster money. And so again, we go back to this concept of the, the more time goes by, um, the older something gets, the rarer it gets. When it surfaces, it brings in more attraction. And these these sales draw more attention because we're like, oh my gosh, 5.9 million, 1.56 million for Mario. Like, holy, holy heck. So, you know, it's interesting to watch these things happen and see the frequency with which records are broken. It's, it's, it's like, you don't have to wait that long. It's kind of crazy. Pretty amazing stuff. So I want to talk about that, the Steph Curry card. One of one logo, man. This last point I want to talk about is sort of like a more personal thing. Some of you might be able to relate to it, though, because um, I'm sure at least I feel partially confident in assuming some of you have thought about this. If not, then then we're going to talk about it and you're going to think about it as we're talking about it. And I've been thinking about this for a while over the past at least seven months. Question here. Have advanced collectors lost relevance in the current investment crazed market? Okay, think about that. Like guys like me who have been this for multi-decades, I'm I'm a 33rd year now in in trading card collecting. When I'd go to card shows in the 90s, I've been to a lot of card shows in my life. And the the first couple of those 90s shows anyway, between 95 and 98, um, I'd dig through bargain bins and find cards for a dollar. I'd find cards for a dollar in showcases that were just awesome cards I was looking for. And I'd pay you know, a dollar for 85 tops to a card. And I've talked about that card before. It's such a, an iconic card to me in my youth because 
it was a card I'd wanted and I, I was so excited to find it. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I got this. Not even a rookie card, by the way. His rookie was 84 Don Russ. But, you know, super excited to spend a dollar on a card I've always wanted. That happened to me for years. I'd go to a show and find like a 87 tops, you know, traded Reggie Jackson in a quarter bin and be super stoked on it and share with other friends and they'd be excited on it too. And other dealers even like, yeah, it's cool. Congratulations. Of course, they're into made money. So they're like, their goal is different than mine, but um, they can share in my excitement. Fast forward to now, or at least the last two years, when I get go to find it, go to a show and dig into a bargain bin um, and find, you know, a card that's a dollar. Like, oh my gosh, I got this card. It's like, it's a sample or whatever. I show it to someone, nobody cares. <laughs> like, if it's not a Jordan, <laughs> a LeBron, a Kobe, you know, uh, uh, just a big, huge card, a, you know, high-end Griffey, nobody cares. And I think it's like, I'm not sure if it's no, it's obviously not nobody because not everything is anything, but you know, when I go to card shows, I feel like there in my, I feel like as a collector, a true collector myself, not an investor, I make my money in other ways. I feel like I'm kind of an outsider in a way. And the, the current version of the hobby, a lot of people are in it just to turn a profit. They don't care about the players or really the cards. They're just like, Hey, well at nine, if it does, I want it. Cause I can turn a profit on it. But sharing this delight of these finds, these serendipitous finds with other collectors and or dealers I don't, I don't, that, that same connection is, is just in a lot of ways kind of missing now. It's, it's not there as, at least it was, it's not there as, as, as robust as it was when I was younger. And, you know, I've grown up, I've changed too. I'm an adult now. Like I'm a grown man. I'm not a teenager anymore. And so uh, maybe it's, you know, that's part of it too, is that, and I haven't lost the excitement. I, I, I approach card shows a different way because I have such a, a rigorous focus um, on what I collect, very specific foci. And, you know, if they don't meet that, whatever those are, those themes, I, I walk and, and I walk a lot. And so, um, but I still get really excited about stuff I find at shows. And I try to, I try to share this with somebody like, check it out, I got this Griffey card. It's doesn't have the, the serial number on the, the top, the numerator. Right. And so like, I share with somebody, but nobody cares. I'm like, this is such a rad, rare piece. I'll probably never see another one like it. Like, it's such a rare thing. And I got it for, you know, 40 bucks or whatever. It's not a bargain card, obviously, but still like it's it's in one of those like rows that's on a in a box, like on a table with a bunch of other boxes. So it's kind of that bargain binny sort of atmosphere. When I share this with people, though, they're just <laughs> they're like, who cares, dude? It's not like whatever <laughs> you're gonna buy something or what <laughs> like that's how i feel sometimes it's it's I, I try to share the excitement but i i feel like us guys who've been doing this a long time um if we're not investors and we're not you know connecting with the the, the current group in the same way in which um you know excites them to be in, in the hobby it, it's difficult to connect with them on these small you know, I'm the only one interested sort of purchases. Uh, but I just want to share that because maybe you, maybe, you know, you, one of you, one, maybe you felt that way. Maybe you felt that way. Maybe you felt that, that you've gone into card shows and, and you've had a difficult time connecting with the current market too. I, I don't know. I mean, it's not everybody. Like I said, I have some core guys who are excited about things for me too, but I just feel kind of, um, in a way sort of irrelevant in that way that I, I, for in that very specific way 
that I get excited about small things. And I buy cards. I don't buy players. And so I, I go after like, oh, this is the orange refractor, the SP or whatever, of a player who nobody collects anymore. Um, kind of a cool thing to think about, though, in terms of like how you process that um, interpersonal transaction with you and other people. Um, just something to think about. So I want to talk about those things. I want to talk about this. Thank you for tuning into the Rad Cards podcast and radcards.com. And until next time, enjoy collecting. If you like this content, please subscribe. Thank you. Enjoy collecting.